But again, the focus is Christ, our Lord, this morning. And despite all of the workings of man, all the plans and the political ambitions, there is one God who rules over all. He is never threatened. And Psalm 2 rejoices in this truth. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise and be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. We have a kinship with Israel. Need I even say that? It's so obvious. If one knows anything from Genesis to the book of Revelation. As you will notice that we're going to be looking at a passage in Daniel in chapter 11, verses 33 to 35. We're going to be getting there. Not right at this moment, but we're going there. And Hanukkah is in this passage. Believe me, it is. Let's rehearse something. Roger's going to help me in this moment. This is, uh, as of sundown today, would be the fourth day of the Feast of Lights. This is Hanukkah, lighting the menorah, which is, of course, connected with the lampstand. We know that from the book of uh, Exodus. And I think we'll go through the first four candles today. And this is the way that Hanukkah is conducted with much more flourish and more than what I'm saying and what we're doing at this moment. But this will give you some idea of where it goes. Of course, light, it's all about light. And on the first day, there are ways that you can craft this and shape it, each of these successive candles and the lighting of them. I have chosen one that I think is consistent in its emphasis on light. And here we have day one, the light of creation. God said, let there be light, and there was light. Light dispels the darkness. And then on day two, it's the light of Adam. As God put Adam in the garden and gave him understanding and gave him, initially, he had that freedom to serve God and to give light to this creation. 
And then, on day three, Moses, his light, he shared the light of God with Israel as he brought to them the Ten Commandments. Highly significant is the story of redemption and God's kingdom moves forward. And then on day four, light of God's word. We think of David and Psalm 119 just really echoes this truth. The light of God's words, a light unto our feet and a lamp to our path. That's the light of the word of God. Thank you, Roger. These are the ways and there are further things that uh, come through in days five, six, and seven, and then eight, concluding on the 15th. And more about this process and the meaning of it all as we go along. I'd like for us now to bow together in prayer. I want to read. Let's be mindful. Be mindful as we look into the scriptures. God has shown us many mercies in his grace here in this nation. We do not have to contend with some things like what I'm about to read to you, and I want us to pray for this. This is the date line in India, November the 29th, 2023. Pastor arrested under anti-conversion law. Hindu radicals disrupted a worship service on February the 6th, 2022. Accusing Pastor Ramesh Verma of breaking anti-conversion laws. Police arrested Ramesh and placed him in jail. For the first 15 days, Ramesh asked God why he allowed this to happen. But when his son brought him a Bible and, and in what he had to say with regard to this, Ramesh's perspective changed, he began to minister to his fellow prisoners and lead them to Christ. He and his younger son distributed 60 New Testaments in the prison. After three months in jail, Ramesh was released on bail, but the church has been forcibly closed and his evangelism efforts are restricted while the case is pending. The family has faced considerable hardship from the arrest and detention including job loss and rejection by family members. Nevertheless, Ramesh continues to visit and encourage church members while he waits, awaits a verdict. Let's pray for him. I've seen these churches function in India, one of the highlights of my life, to visit a small, small church in Mysore in India in just a little room in a house. Just the joy and in the midst of Hindu communists all around in the community, where these people were just overflowing with joy and even had a little parade to precede that meeting, calling attention to the meeting with megaphones and with carrying scripture verses. Let's pray together. We thank you, our Lord and God, for your mercies and grace to us. You have indeed shed your grace on us. We have not deserved what we receive here the freedoms, the opportunities that we have now to come and to hear your word. Thank you, Lord, that you did give R.J. and Erica, their children, this mercies, and travel all the way from Michigan to be with us today. Thank you, Lord, for keeping them well 
giving them rest. Thank you for the hospitality of the round trees and opening up their home to them. Thank you, Lord, for these, the, the gift of this visit, this time together. And our Lord, how we do pray for our nation. It falters. Lord, it looks to us with what, what we know it would appear. Our civilization continues to crumble, fall apart. Well, Lord, it is the history of the authority of your word, your presence, and what many call that Judeo-Christian worldview as it continues to be uh, dismantled and ridiculed and mocked and rejected. But Father, we want to be lights, lights. So enable us and use this passage before us to work in us a renewed commitment, Lord, to be as little lights as Jesus Christ is indeed the light of the world. Now, open our eyes, Lord, that we may see wonderful things from your law. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I thought this would be appropriate, though it's going to take just a couple of minutes. I usually don't start out with newspaper clippings uh, to read. But I had this in my files, and it was just too good to put aside. And... The dateline is, is part of the story, actually, though it's not carried through in the, what it said. But the title of the article is, Without Hanukkah, There Might Have Been No Christmas. This is dated Saturday, December the 1st, 2001. And it's written by Paul Lapides. And he is, at that time, he was a professor at Kennesaw State University and the author of more than a hundred books and articles. This helps. Next, well, he speaks of, in terms of dating and when this would be next Sunday night and so forth. I'm skipping that paragraph. Hanukkah is the celebration of the survival of the Jewish people at a time in history when the Syrian king Antiochus and his armies tried to force the Jewish people to stop practicing their faith. Instead, the king wanted the Jewish people to worship idols. Jews who continued to observe the Sabbath, study the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, or circumcise their sons were killed. To preserve their Jewish traditions and religion, a small group of Jews led by the Maccabees fought the much larger and powerful armies of the king. Fortunately, for my family and me, and for Jews and Christians in America and throughout the world, the Maccabees won. The story of the Maccabees is told each year to remind Jews of this great victory that preserved their religion and their religious freedom. Although rarely told, the Hanukkah story is also for Christians. If the powerful Syrian Greek armies had succeeded in stopping the Jewish people from practicing their faith by force or by exterminating all the Jews, there could not have been a child born to Jewish parents in the town of Bethlehem more than 150 years later. That event, which occurred 2,000 years ago, is recorded as the birth of Jesus of Nazareth. So, without Hanukkah, there might have been no Jesus, no Christ, no Christmas. No Hanukkah, no Christmas, 
Maybe this year Christians will begin to celebrate Hanukkah in recognition of the significant, the significant event leading to the birth of Christianity. Maybe too, Jews will begin to find joy in the fact that Christians throughout the world believe that the Messiah was born to Jewish parents, a Jewish man, and a rabbi or teacher too. The gift of Hanukkah is Christmas. May this holiday season bring you much light. May you be a light unto the world. Happy Hanukkah, Merry Christmas. Can you imagine someone writing this today? <laughs> this Jewish man writing this with such generosity and such, I think, quite a lot of clarity on some important things. I also came across this. I saw this blurb on the news, and it was a picture of this IDF soldier, Israeli Defense Force, and he had, it had a quote underneath the picture, and it says this. He says, I'm in Israel in the IDF, and Hanukkah this year looks a lot like the first Hanukkah. I thought that that was quite perceptive as to what's, what's happening. So you would want to get your Bibles ready and go to the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel. Oh my, what a rich, rich treasure house of truth in this book. For in the book of Daniel, we get a perspective on world events that you don't get in any other book. It has a special contribution. To make. And the book of Daniel, know this, it stands at the very pinnacle of Old Testament prophetic writings. Daniel stands on the shoulders of the books of Moses, the Torah, most of the prophets, and the poetic books. And you need to know this, that at 167 BC, the Maccabees Patriots received their spiritual encouragement from the book of Daniel. How do you know that? Well, 1 Maccabees 2, 15, 59 through 60. Well, you won't find that in your Bible, probably, but it's a part of the apocryphal books. That's another story. We can talk about that another time. But also about Daniel, note this. The mind and teaching of Jesus Christ was filled with the book of Daniel. If you wanted to have the ultimate Bible seminar on the book of Daniel, let Jesus be the instructor. And it just came through his pores as he taught, as he lived. When you come into the book of Matthew and the record of Jesus giving to us that uh, Olivet Discourse, as we know, the 24 and 25 of Matthew, of the the Lord laying out the future of Israel and of Jerusalem, both short-term and long-term. He mentions an abomination of desolation. Well, that may sound strange to your ears, that terminology, but I can guarantee you it's huge in the story of future Israel. And it was in the story uh, in chapter 11 of Daniel. And Jesus also is quoted Daniel 7 and 13 when describing his second coming. So this is not just um, snatching something out of the air when we look at what we're about to look at in Daniel in chapter 11. So you would want to be there, be in that vicinity. We're going to be looking closely in verses 28 to 35. 
Before I read it and before we discuss it, before we go forward, and I do want to thank Ed Sherwood for putting together another rehearsal on the meaning of this. If that article and some of those details slip away and if this sermon, some of it may begin to fade in your memory, uh, Ed indicated that he's, he's talked to a, a Jewish friend or somebody is in the know and he edited this as the meaning of Hanukkah. So these are available to you as well. And I would assume that our friends down the street, B'nai Barith, that uh, in some form or fashion there would be a recognition of Hanukkah. You may be wondering at this point, why are we doing this? And I take special delight in getting the shock that I got 23 years ago when I was going through the book of Daniel and I came upon this and I said, wait a minute. We share a lot with those who came, brought about this first Hanukkah celebration. A lot. All right, hold that. I hope I can make that clear as we go forward. But here we are today. Fast forward, then we'll go back. Fast backward. Fast forward. The birth of Israel as a nation. The cries of, for a Palestinian state. Set before us two different worldviews. If you want to go to a place where there are some, there's striking contrast in worldviews, go to the Middle East. Not just because of the presence of Israel and the presence of Islam, but the presence of Christians right there in the city of Jerusalem. Without Hanukkah, there might have been no Christmas. That's a, maybe a bit of a stretch. We understand the sovereignty of God, and he protects that messianic line all the way from Abraham and Sarah, he protects it. It does become a very slender thread at times, but he protects it in that remnant work of grace in giving us the Messiah, Jesus Christ. We're going to come back there. We're going to land in Luke chapter 1. So let's consider something about Daniel chapter 11. You still with me? Now, I've got to be very careful here. I, I must confess a bit of a little, a little trepidation on, on this because... This chapter 11 of Daniel is some heavy lifting, folks. And I, I confess that one time in my Bible reading, and I was kind of in a hurry to get my Bible reading. I, this is full disclosure here. And I knew that I was going to be reading all these details in chapter 11. And I said, I'll come back to this. <laughs> and I, I was in a hurry to get on to the book of Hosea and following. I've lamented that. You know, there are 135 prophecies in Daniel chapter 11. 135. This is some detailed prehistory written in this chapter. Now, I need to tell you this. That what God is doing in this section of the book of Daniel is that he is providing a worldview, or at least pieces of the puzzle of the worldview, that Daniel needed to know. Uh, it, chapter 9 is just huge in its place in the scheme or the understanding the plan of God for the future for Israel in that Daniel's 70th week in Daniel 9, 24 to 27. We'll work with that next week, Lord willing. But then, when we get into chapter 10, this comes on the heels of a time of prayer that Daniel had. It's three weeks he agonized before God. He wanted to know what is the future of Jerusalem. 
He understood that the 70 years of captivity in Babylon were drawing to a close. He wanted to know the future, and God gave it to him. Now, I'm going to fly over, but attention to what's really happening on the ground, that God told him that there had been some delay in communicating with him because there had been some serious Star Wars combat in the heavenlies between Michael, the archangel, Israel's angel. I'm of the persuasion that God's probably got an angel dispatched to every nation, but especially in the upper echelon of the angel hierarchy, Michael stands as in a special relationship to Israel. But he had to do some combat. You ask me, what did that look like? I won't go further, but to say that it was a real, real exchange of some heavy weapons. Satan had his Prince of Persia, a senior officer in the demonic force that Satan rules over and has dispatched, and I think he has a demonic power placed by every nation on the planet. I know he has one on Persia. You know he has one on Greece. It says so in, this, in, this, uh, in the 10th chapter. So that Prince of Persia, a demonic power. Oh, I want to hitchhike on that a little bit. No, I won't go there. Just check your map out to see what nations would fit into that, into that geography today. So here is where he goes. So then he takes Daniel through that and gives him then this preview. And what Daniel needed to know was something about the immediate future of Israel. He's given him lessons about the future of Israel, way down to the end of time, but he weaves together the immediate future. And here is where we launch into chapter 11 and verse 21. I'm skipping over some things, but if you have your Bibles in front of you, and if you have a study Bible that gives you some paragraph instructions that could help you at this time to know at least what's going on historically. And I'm looking in my Bible, I'm noticing in the 11th chapter, it says, verse, with regard to verse 2, Persia. All right, I can't elaborate on that. I will go to the next, and it says, Greece. Are you still with me? Verses 3, three to 4. And what is implicit in those verses would be a man by the name of Alexander the Great. You know of him, surely, your history. We have young people here who may have already, who are quite fresh on these things. They're studying them in their history. Alexander the Great. Mind you, what we're seeing here is the outworking of the plan of God. God is the sovereign God over all history. The big history, and as we will see eventually, our personal histories as well. So Alexander the Great, what a warrior. What a genius. Oh, mother and father, he came from some um, gifted, gifted, heritage, gifted heritage. And by the age of 32, he had conquered a significant portion of the world. <laughs> all the way from the east in what would be Gibraltar in the west, all the way over into upper the northwestern part of India. He was uh, just a great strategist, and with swiftness, he covered that territory. But he lived hard. Malaria got him. He died in, I think the year was 323 B.C. 
put him in a golden casket, took him down to Egypt, buried him there. But then his empire was divided up into four generals. That didn't work out so well, as often it will, when you get someone great and, and they go, and then those who come after are not of the same caliber of thought and inspiration. One of those, and I'm really having to shrink it down because we're at verse 20, 21 now, because a lot of time is covered. You can see that there is a statement in my Bible that says Egypt and Syria. Do you see that? Well, if you read that and you're trying to keep all those people, it's two groups, Syrians and Egyptians. They're called the Ptolemies in Egypt and the Seleucids in Syria. Stay with me on this. If you, if you go off the track and let your mind wander too far, you're, you're going to miss something. So these are prophecies. All scripture is God-breathed and profitable. These are given. Here is Israel's immediate future. And then we come to verse 21. And things slow down. For from verse 21 down to verse 35, it's all about one king. One full of himself, prideful, vain king. Antiochus Epiphanes. Or as some like to call him Antiochus Epimanes. And they're playing on that word Epimanes, meaning the madman. He was awful. He achieved his power and position by intrigue and assassination and power grabbing and cruelty and meanness and devious means. So, what we're given, we're given attention to him here. Now, we can't walk through, we won't walk through this time from verses 21 and following. But here is what begins to unfold. If you are following along in your notes and you have that outline distributed through there. This is going to help you here. I've tried to make it so. You will notice that we come to verses 21 to 32. I think the best way to get a handle on this section is to say it this way. The hope of Israel was brutally assaulted by pagan forces. That's why the Spirit of God directed Daniel in the writing of this to give these details. God is in the details. We have a saying, the devil is in the details. No, he's not. God's in all the details. He's sovereignly ruling in every way, and you can see it fleshed out in this section. As what I've said with regard to Persia and Greece, and now Antiochus Epiphanes. Well, here is a very fascinating aspect of this war that occurs in the heavenly places between Michael and the demonic power over Persia. It has earthly uh, an earthly counterpart. What happens there impacts what happens here. Let your sanctified imagination play with that a little bit. You have to be careful with that as to what's going on in the Middle East at the present time. But here's what happens. Satan seeks to destroy Israel and the messianic hope. Keep that in mind. That's a very important theological theme through the scriptures. It's not the most important, but it's telling us that Satan is doing all he can to destroy the movement of God's plan toward the ultimate glory and power and rule of the Israel's Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so we shouldn't be surprised to then to see what happens here. At this point then, Satan is going to be using Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, let me give you a little bit of a history story. Got to be careful. Got to be careful. Some of you, you could 
you'd rather go off and play. You shouldn't be using your phones now unless you're following the scriptures. But I want you to catch this and follow this. Antiochus Epiphanes, he was a tyrant. He wanted power. He wanted it. And Antiochus Epiphanes grew up in Rome. He'd been kidnapped and he grew up there. And he developed a worldview with a mix of Rome and a Hellenistic culture worldview. Hellenistic, Greek. This is what uh, Alexander the Great spread through his empire. He thought that this would be the way in which his version of a utopia could be achieved. If we can just get everyone to think Greek-like, what would that be like? Well, idolatry would be right in the middle of it. An idolatry of the sort that Antiochus Epiphanes sought to implement. So let's get back to Antiochus and what he wanted to do. He wanted his own little power in the Middle East. He wanted to take over Egypt, the Ptolemies, down in the south. So you have in this section a lot of the back and forth battles and so forth. So Antiochus takes his army and he goes down to Egypt and he ransacks it and takes a lot of the, the valuables and so forth and takes them back up to Antioch. And then he goes back again for a second time. In the meantime, what has happened in the city of Jerusalem and in Israel? Because Alexander had already, in some sense, he had covered Israel, the land of, well, we call it, wasn't called Palestine then, but called the, the land of Israel. He covered it with his, attempted with his Greek culture. He wanted people to speak Greek. He wanted people to worship Greek gods and goddesses. He wanted the gymnasiums to exist. He outlawed, I'm fast forwarding some things here. He wanted to outlaw the, uh, the synagogues, and he did, and temple worship. He put in place in the temple, he put an image of Zeus. Think of that. And offered a pig meat, a pig, in the Holy of Holies. That's why it's called the abomination of desolation. It's abomination, disgusting, awful, evil and desolate of the presence of the holiness of God. It is the ultimate human act to displace God in a central place of worship, which at that time was still in the, in the Jewish, in the theocracy. Israel was still a, a functioning theocracy. God was the king. God was the ruler. But here comes Antiochus Epiphanes. Things really got nasty. Well, they did so, but as I said, he... He forbade the observance of Shabbat, the Sabbath. It became a capital crime to practice circumcision. It was against the law, again, to observe the feast of the Jewish year. Those were canceled. Talk about the cancel culture. Big time cancel culture here. Copies of the Hebrew scriptures were destroyed. As I said, in this image of Zeus and Jupiter were placed upon the temple altar. And further... It gets much worse. Actually, I had to decide, you know, I'd better leave some of this stuff out. This is going to especially make the ladies very uneasy with what, what happened at that time. All of the slaughter, it was terrible. Eliezer, Eliezer, an aged scribe, he was flogged to death because he refused to eat swine's flesh. A mother and her seven children were successively butchered in the presence of the governor for refusing to pay homage to an image. Well, Antiochus Epiphanes was angry. He saw the Jews as a, an impediment, a barrier 
to creating this cultural cohesion that he wanted. He wanted Greek culture to dominate. And Israel was a blockage to that and their tenacity. A few, not all. This was another part of the story. Because in this time, when he was seeking to get a pervasive Greek culture to control everything in life, there was a remnant of Jews. He says, not on our watch. And so that's where he comes. Now, the hope of Israel, and if you're following along here, I've left out some gory parts in case you wanted to know. There's more to it. Antiochus was awful, awful, awful. And it was, he was attempting to destroy the Jewish people. Now, will you follow with me verses 33 to 35? We're going to land here. We actually have been just above the field of tension. But we're going to land on these verses and look at them more closely. The hope of Israel was defended by valiant Jewish warriors filled, filled with a zeal for God. This is what got my blood up. <laughs> I remember years ago reading through this and then look at the Holy Spirit's commentary on this. So follow along with me as we look at it. And I'm going to explain a few things, all right? You have to look now, look closely, put your glasses up off your nose if you need to, and or whatever it takes. In verse 28, and he shall return to his land. I'm going to be explaining some of these things. He is Antiochus Epiphanes. He returned from Egypt. He was angry because the Romans met him there and said, you're not going any further. That ticked him off. He comes back and says, the Jews are a hindrance. And there were apostate Jews, by the way. There were Jews who had walked away from Judaism. Sometimes people get confused about Judaism. They think it's some kind of a, a cohesive people who all are in agreement. Those who understand something about Jewish history know that's not true. There are atheistic Jews. But there were apostate Jews who said, hey, we're willing to throw everything we believe under the bus just to be accepted and fit into the culture and be liked and not be killed. He shall return to his land with great wealth and his heart shall be set against the Holy Covenant. That Holy Covenant, that's the entire Mosaic system. He wanted to trash it. And he shall work his will and return to his own land. Verse 29, at the time appointed, he, that's Antiochus Epiphanes, he shall return and come into the south. I went over that briefly a while ago. He goes back down to Egypt. And then it says, but it shall not be this time as it was before. For the ships of Kittim, that's Cyprus, and this is a way of referring to the Roman army. And the, ship, the, the ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall... Uh, be afraid and withdraw and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant, against Israel. They've got to go. They've got to go. In case you haven't noticed, this was a kind of a Hamas exercise in destruction and deployment against Israel. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. He returned and he came back hoping that there would be enough apostate Jews, turncoats, that he could rally them to his cause and win the day and destroy Judaism. Didn't work out so well. Verse 31, forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offerings and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. 
That's where regular worship in the temple was prohibited from then on. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. That is, he was a slick politician. Not only was he a warrior general, he was a very effective diplomat and he knew how to manipulate people and he sought with his uh, manipulation, espionage, and all of his craftiness to get the apostate Jews behind him and to win the day. Well, let's go forward. But the, ah, here it is, here it is. This ought to have lights around it. It doesn't, my notes, I underscored it. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand. Though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. And I'm going to pause and I'll pick up 34 and 35, but let me tell you what happens here. This is where, I'm sure somebody has made a movie. I, somebody reminded me of this. There's got to be a movie. I gravitate to movies who reenact such uh, episodes in history as this. And this is quite the story. Because what happens is that there was a family called the Maccabee family. And the elder one, the elder Maccabees of the Maccabees, he saw that there was a Jew who was willing to step forward and who was willing to violate the law of God for Israel and was willing to commit idolatry. And when he saw this happen, to offer up an, an ill-conceived violation of God's law. And when he saw this, Mattathias was his name. Mattathias the Maccabee, he's the father, had five sons, five sons. And he went forward and he slew, he killed that apostate Jew. Well, this was the spark that lit the fire. This was the beginning of the revolt. That's what we just read about. The revolt took place. And so Israel, those, that remnant of Jews, said no. So he slew this apostate Jew, and then he and his five sons fled to the hills. But they got a following, enough. And then guerrilla warfare began to take place. They didn't fight on the Sabbath, but mm, they changed that in some self-defense, I might add. Then he died. He was an elderly man, and he died, and then his, his son, Judas Maccabeus, took charge. He was, like they say, he fought like a caged lion. He was fierce, and he carried on the revolt. And the Maccabees took on the Syrian army, outnumbered by them. What are you thinking? And what he did was to defeat that army, I'm fast-forwarding here, and then Antiochus, he sent another uh, a brigade or two, actually a battalion, and Mac the Maccabee sons, with their following, outnumbered and with not the weaponry and the discipline that the Syrian army had, and they defeated them again. Ah, and this is where the light begins to break through. We're almost to Hanukkah here. They entered the temple and they removed all the signs of paganism. They cleaned house. The altar dedicated to Jupiter was torn down and a new altar was erected to God. The statue of Zeus, with they say a likeness to Antiochus, was ground to dust. 
And beginning with the 25th of Kislev in December, they observed an eight-day feast of dedication known as Hanukkah, the Festival of Lights. Now you know the story. This is important. This is not just some footnote in Jewish history or in human history. This is important. These were these who initiated this revolt. These were born-again men and women who, who were in the forefront of this of this revolt. And so they celebrated at the end of this three-year period which the temple had been desecrated. That's an interesting time slot. So suffering had become the opportunity to thin out who was for God and who was against God. It came about that in this place, in this time, that God refined his people, that remnant, small as it was, refined them through this over, over, against overwhelming odds and difficulties and things that looked as if it's going from bad to worse. How are we ever going to survive as a people? And I can tell you, Israel has wondered that more than one time. That's the story itself. And if I may just put in a, an aside here, in the adult class after this, we're going to be covering anti-Semitism. We're going to give it some serious attention in that hour. Hope you'll stay around. So here is the picture. God raises up men and women of faith and courage who are willing to pay the price for defending the faith. That's what this is about. You would have been in that number if you had, uh, if we may do a little time warp thing, play with history. You're there. Because many of these believing Jews were killed. They were slaughtered. Martyrs for the faith. And there are those who write historically that this was one of the, this is the first uh, event in history where there was a, a vivid, a de definitive offering of, of lives, giving of lives for the sake of their trust and belief in God, martyrdom. And the early church looked back on this. It's mentioned in the book of Hebrews in chapter 11 in verses 33 through 35, and I'll give you the part of the quote from that, who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. That's in the book of Hebrews. Interestingly, Hebrews, written by Hebrew to Hebrews, so that those Hebrews would no longer be Hebrews, if you get me and you understand the book of Hebrews. And so here it is. One rabbi has said this with regard to what happened here and what created Hanukkah, the fist, festival of lights. He says, on Purim, Purim, one we celebrate the annulment of the royal edict to destroy the body. But on Hanukkah, we were rescued from the decree which would have destroyed our souls. That's how important and significant this is. Oh, we do share so much with Israel. Doesn't your heart really ache? Oh, Israel, Israel. Jesus said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have received you as a mother in her chicks, my wings, but you would not. Could we not say that in some way today and pray for the Jews? Pray for Israel. We wish them no harm, no ill will. We pray, oh, that there will be those who will believe in the Messiah, believe in him. I pray that. Do you, you pray that Netanyahu will come to them? I know, I'm pretty sure he's been spoken to about the gospel. I know of some people who are evangelicals who have met with him. Okay, I kind of wandered off the point, but I want us to come back to this. Now notice, at this point then, this revolt and the achievement, the achievement of, the, of these Maccabees and really providing a defensive perimeter and a reestablishment of Judaism as God had implemented and had given to Israel to be implemented 
with the temple and the worship and the sacrifices and circumcision and Shabbat and all that goes with it. That's what it was all about, to replace, the, to put that back in place. Now, I have to put a however here. I wish I could say, what happens after revolts? This is not the main part of this, where we're going. We're going to get to the final statement here. But it's important to know historically, the revolt became eventually, eventually became a tragedy. Other sons, Judas Maccabeus was killed in battle. Other sons, the youngest came in, but they just didn't have the same uh, chutzpah that the others had, and, and, and it began to break down. And some of the following historical, those who ruled over that part of the land before the Romans came in, because it would have been less than 100 years, and the Romans would march in, in 60, 63 AD, BC. And so it, be, it began to fall apart, and it, uh, as revolutions and revolts often do, you know what it says? You know, and Israel had to have seen this, that things, things just can't be brought to their perfect and right conclusion. The kingdom is not, we thought we had it in our grasp, that which God wanted us to have, the land, the land, and for, oh, Something's missing, something's missing. What is missing here? What's missing? Why did it fall apart? Why did not that rejuvenation of the Israel in the midst of that hostile Greek culture for pushing back against enculturation of idolatry, why didn't it last? Oh, the world could have been different. Hold on, hold on. I'm gonna sneak up on you. Take your Bibles. Now, oh, we got 34 and 35. Oh, let's get those verses, and then we're going to go somewhere else. 34 and 35. Look at these, at these verses, and let's get the picture of what happened. Here it is. And some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white, until the time of the end. That is code, folks, until the time of the end. For there will be, there's a statement for Daniel. I'm going to come back to this, but hold on to that. For it still awaits the appointed time. What is that? The appointed time. Could it be an ultimate time of suffering is still in the future for Israel? And that there will come up one who will be Antiochus Epiphanes-like, who will be a monster of all monsters, who will arise in the last days and who will then seek to destroy Israel and will bring all the suffering of Israel to a, a culmination and, and hold that. Let's go to the book of Luke, please. Let's get Christmassy. Go to Luke chapter one. We need to look at this. It's quite significant in this, as I've stated here in your notes, that the hope of Israel was realized, how? Well, let me let the, let me let the Messiah out of the bag here, as it were. The hope of Israel was realized in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, Israel's Messiah. Luke 1. So we go through those so-called silent years, not a good way to describe them, but between the Testaments. All right, now we're into some new landscape. And where are we? Where do we start in our look into, well, whether it's Matthew or the Gospel of Luke, what do we immediately encounter? Genealogies. Have you noticed that? 
you're reading and you're all up for what the New Testament's got to say and then you get into beget, 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 beget. You say, ah, come on, let's get to, this. Let's get to the good stuff. That's good stuff. Because that shows that God protected that lineage, that line of the Messiah to Mary and to Joseph, protected them and brought it to this point. And I'm looking at Luke in chapter 1 and I'm fast forwarding. Yes, I'm skipping over some things, but let's get this. And he, this is the birth announcement of 31. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob. Israel, forever in the millennium and on into eternity future. Forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Do you know why you come out of the Maccabean celebration of Hanukkah and you're up and then, historically speaking, you're kind of down? We need a Messiah. We need, a Mess we need someone who can really pull this off who can defeat the powers of this world and who has power over and will defeat Satan himself. He wins these temporary battles, but he didn't win the big one. And he, the Lord Jesus Christ here has spoken of, he's going to fulfill this promise that was made to David. You know that Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7? Massive in its importance in what it says to us. For this Messiah of Israel will have to sit on the throne of David, ruling over the kingdom that is promised. And who is this? It's a baby. It's a baby. A baby cradled in his mother's arms. Helpless. Isn't that really striking? Isn't it? You're kind of still wanting, well, where is this great warrior coming on the white horse with a sword proceeding from his mouth with a crown on his head? It's a baby. It's a baby. They're so helpless. We're looking at pictures. We hope to see the real thing pretty soon of our great-granddaughter. <laughs> She's so helpless. A pudgy little thing. She sleeps all the time. Oh, just wants to eat and sleep. So helpless. Has to be taken care of. She's, what can she do to help herself? Can you imagine the Son of God? God, the incarnate God put himself in that place, in that position. But ah, the story changes as he becomes the king, the king of kings and lord of lords. I'm only teasing you, but I wanted you to look at this passage and appreciate it. I think I need to come to this conclusion. I know I do. I want to come back to a statement that was made. You recall I said it just a moment ago. Can you stay with me? I'm going forward, I went forward, I'm going to go back so I can go forward. Stay with me. And what he says here at this passage in Daniel chapter 11 and verse 34, 35, verses 35. For it still waits the appointed time. Let's think of this, think of it this way. God wanted Daniel to know something. He wanted Daniel to know that he makes no mistakes with his people. Daniel had his struggles, I'm sure. But nothing is left to chance because it's still to come, the appointed time. There's something coming. Do you get that? I know you want more there, but squeeze it, squeeze it. 
the appointed time of what? I gave you a little hint of that in Luke chapter 1. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to sweep all the way over to Romans in chapter 11. And so, the Lord, uh, I'm giving a quote here. It was too good not to give it. The Lord of all history and destiny lifts Daniel's eyes to see the coming centuries. Omitting the church age entirely. Here, fly over. Down to the 70th week, which is introduced next in terms of the Antichrist and his global dominion. I didn't tell you this. Do you know what happens at verse 36 of Daniel chapter 11? After that description, why did we stop? Do you know what that is? Look, careful observers of the scripture and reading and study, that's the beginning of a description of the coming Antichrist, who Antiochus Epiphanes was a type. And it goes from verse 36 to the end of describing that Antichrist. Oh, there's so much there, but we can't go there. Let's come back to this statement, to the appointed time. Here's what I think is, is particularly significant in what we, should, what we need to know here. I don't want to drop too many of these quotes on you. I know your mind can run away quickly on them, but I thought this was so good. To pull things together at this point, from why all this detail and why this, these who knew their God rose up and fought against the Syrian armies and defeated them and looked like they were going to save the day for Israel. And in some sense, they did do that. But here this, I'm reading one writer says this, Daniel, when Ecclesiastes proclaimed the nonsense of life without faith, Daniel helps us to see the nonsense of trying to have faith unless at the same time we have hope in what is going to be at the end of time. Get this hope and end of time thing. Faith and hope. Perhaps this may help. I got to thinking about this a little bit more. There is the big story of history in God's working through great empires, Babylon and Medo-Persia and Greece and Rome. And then in the future, what many believe and I do, a revived Roman Empire. And the nations come together again to destroy Israel. That's the big story. And then the King of Kings and Lord of Lords comes. But you know, there's a small story too. And you know what that little story is? Your life and my life. And Daniel needed some of this truth, and we need it too. And here is the way that it works out. You know, as you go along in life, you can't always figure out how things come, why this came next, and why that came next, and where are we going? You ever had that sense in your own personal life? You read the story here in Daniel 11, and you, you have that impact, effect on me. Is that what was God doing here? What's God doing? Daniel didn't get the whole story. So what is it? What is it? I think it's like this. This helps me to understand what God does in our lives, to trust him and love him more, because there's hope toward which we look, but there's faith in the process. We had an interesting yesterday, afternoon yesterday. Pardon the personal expression, but I couldn't think of another way to do this. This seemed to fit. Just dawned on me in the last 12 hours. We had two events, and I might say that they were quite touching events. We went to the round trees, as some of you did, and there was that celebration of God's answer to prayer and the healing of one who had cancer. You don't get those kinds of answers every day. You know, God re revived that family and renewed them and gave them that. And that was one of those, one of those stories in the journey of life says, yeah, I can figure that out. God's good, isn't he? Uh -huh. But then there are other parts of the story we kind of falter a little bit. All right, let me continue on. 
We went from there. We had another obligation. We went to a wedding. And I won't go into the stories. These are personal friends of ours we know from our time at the gymnasium. And uh, it was north of Noonan. Well, it was a little daunting. I said, I've got to drive from uh, down here on Porter Road and get to Noonan within a certain time frame. Get to this place. I didn't know where it was. I looked it up on the map. Well, if I may, without boring you, thank God for maps. And I don't know who the baby is that talks to us on that thing. She's just kind of professional, you know, straight liner. And so she kept taking me in opposite ways in which I, I had it figured out. I knew where Noonan was. My parents used to live there. And I, yeah, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, I'm going to do that, I'm going to do that. Well, we pull out on Porter Road. More information than you need here, excuse me. We pulled out on Porter Road, and we, Porter Road, and we didn't go east, we went west. And then when we got down to the end of Porter Road and got on to 85, I would have gone right. Then it said, she said, go left. Okay, where are we going? I got to shorten this up. This became, <laughs> I said, it kept, where are we going? We were going, and then we come to these uh, roundabouts. And she'd say, roundabout, take this second exit on the roundabout. And I still wonder, where are we going? And I, I know Georgia, I know West Georgia, but we were going, I said, are we ever going? I knew where we needed to go, but we just seemed to be going in opposite directions. Roundabouts, whoa, if she hadn't helped us. So we kept going. I went on roads that I, and saw we actually became kind of an entertainment for us, <laughs> like a tour. <laughs> we didn't know, all this is over here. Do you see all those apartments? And look at this road. Oh, this area doesn't look so good. And then this, that, and the other. And we kept making turns, making turns, making turns. And then finally, 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 we come out and then I said, I know where we are. <laughs> I know where we are. And we were about a mile or two from where we needed to be. I got to thinking, you know, God is going to give to us the privilege, macro and micro. We're going to be able, when we go through the gates of glory, cross over our bridge, whatever it looks like, into God's Christ's presence. There's the big story. I think we're going to get a lot of explanations. I don't know how quickly it will happen. I just... Believe me, at this time in life, I think more about it. And what is that going to be like to begin to see the big picture? Oh, oh, that, okay, I can see how this fits. But then there's the micro, my life, your life. Why'd this happen? Why'd we go there? Sometimes you get on these roundabouts and you say, well, that looks like that would be the better one to go. There's a good sign there. It says, such and so, the city is just so many miles. We'll go, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. Listen, keep following directions. If you can, analogy breaks down at points, but I'm saying God gives us wisdom, he guides us, and we get into situations and places and decisions, and sometimes it looks oxymoronic, or if you will, it looks contradictory, paradoxical. Say, why is this happening in my life at this time? Why? Why God bringing these people along? Why, why am I seeing this? Why am I experiencing that? And then faith, faith, yes, faith, just latches on. God knows what he's doing. He's taking us, just faith. But then all of a sudden, oh, oh, this is where you took me. <laughs> now I can look back. 
And, you know, now we've got to do this. Look back on that trip that we made. See, okay, I don't know that I could retrace it. <laughs> but I see what God is doing. And this is what I think God wanted Daniel to experience. Daniel, the appointed time. is hope. Hope. And did you know what you need for the hope to be fulfilled? Confidence in God. Trust in him along the way. Don't bail out. Now things can look kind of contradictory and difficult, but trust him. Are you trusting him? Oh, you know, the most important thing, are you trusting him as your savior? You have no hope without that confidence and trust and absolute faith in the atoning work of Christ for the shedding, the shedding of blood, the forgiveness of sin. Oh, you got, hey, you got to get maps on. Get maps on. Wait. Some of you are wandering around out there and you think you know where you're going. You're lost. <laughs> you think you're okay. You're lost. You're not, you, can, you can remedy that. Coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, God, forgive me of my sin and make me a new creature in Christ. And if you're a believer and you're struggling with something that's just got you all confused, trust him. What I don't know, you said, yeah, I take this, I take this second exit on this, on this uh, roundabout. I don't know where I'm going. I, well, I do, but I don't in the meantime. <laughs> it doesn't look like it fits. Let's pray. Oh, our Lord, our God, we thank you for the Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, that you're guiding and giving us hope. All this wonderful story of Hanukkah, the lights, what you did for us, we pray for Israel, Lord. Oh, we know that they're not a perfect people and so many don't believe in the Messiah, but we do pray that they can overcome the evil that's put upon them. And Lord, I want to pray for Palestinian people who know Christ and are trying to live for you in an awful situation. Give them courage to work through these problems. Now, Lord, give us renewed commitment to your love and to the gospel of Christ. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Amen. Amen.